0: Hey y'all, it's Jeff from MCS Mag and as much as I love my firearms training, the area of tactical preparedness that fascinates me the most is the mental preparedness that goes into preparing for dealing with a real life threat. And it doesn't just need to be a live gunfight. I'm talking about the prospect of hardening your mind to deal with everything from stress at work to an all out collapse or natural disaster. In order to find out more about how to be ready for any threat that life may throw at you, I got a good friend of mine to jump on the phone with me and give up some really great survival mindset strategies that he has used in real life against real threats. I can't wait to share it with you, so let's go ahead and get started now. Check this out.
1: Tactical firearms training, urban survival, close quarters combat. This this is another podcast to help you better prepare for any threat you may face in your role as a protector and a patriot. This is modern combat and survival.
0: We live in a dangerous world. Okay, now how many times have you heard that statement made in relation to everything short of a zombie apocalypse? Well, no matter how many times people may pay lip service to the idea of danger outside your door, many approaches to self-protection address only part of the problem of protecting yourself and your family. You know, carrying a firearm is one part of it, but it's not the whole package. And being aware of your environment and even taking precautions to, like, fortify your home against a home invasion, those are also parts of it. But even they aren't totally comprehensive. So what is the prepared citizen to do in order to create a kind of tactical shield, a force field of protection around you and your family to be truly ready for anything. That's what we're here to find out now. Hello everyone, this is Jeff Anderson, editor for Modern Combat Survival Magazine, with another podcast to help you better prepare for any threat you may face in your role as a protector and a patriot. And today we're going to be going beyond the gun with my good friend and our special guest, Mike Gillette. Mike, welcome back to the program.
2: Hey Jeff, good to be with you.
0: All right, man, I'm looking I'm looking forward to this cuz this is kind of an area that I I really see you excelling in and uh it's some, something that a lot of people don't really talk about or know a lot about and it's something that I'm really intrigued about. So I'm I'm looking forward to this. Now, listen everybody, I, I've known Mike a long time and he's one of the guys that I really admire in the business cuz he's he's one of those guys that really walks the talk. And he's a former Army paratrooper, he's a SWAT commander, uh, chief of police whose unique training and background have also made him one of the most credentialed executive protection specialists around. For several high ranking CEOs and celebrities, people, who's knew, who, people whose name you would actually know. Like these are people that you would know from the magazines, from the television, just from everyday household names. And if that wasn't enough, he can literally bend iron bars with his bare hands at, I'm not going to fill in a number here, but Mike, how old are you now?
2: Uh, I'm 53.
0: 53. And you can say that with pride. When you're bending iron bars at 53, you're doing something right. So listen, everybody, to learn <laughs> more on about, who you ask. what's that? <laughs> depending on who you ask. Yeah, depending on who you ask. Well, if you ask me, it's, I'm um, you know, I'm still working with copper bars or whatever. Okay. So Okay. <laughs> To learn more about Mike and his training, make sure that you visit his website online at www. Now, the topic that we're talking about here is really how, to, like, how to be prepared for anything out there, like, how, like that mental mindset and 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 skills and training and everything. Like, how do you how do you live that tactical lifestyle? And this is something that that Mike has really had to do as being a high level executive protection specialist as well. So, Mike. You've really done all that grunt work of executive protection, but you've also trained people. I mean, both both other bodyguards as well as civilians in how to stay safe and protect their family. Now, I ask this question a lot of people, and and to me, it's kind of like the the bedrock of people who have been like in the know, like they like they have the experience behind it. So, what would you say is the number one mistake that you see most people make when it comes to being tactically prepared for any threat? And then what's the best way to overcome that challenge?
2: Well, in terms of the, the biggest mistake, or we even want to frame that as, as a misunderstanding, I think, Jeff, that people don't analyze what is actually dangerous or where their greatest vulnerabilities lie. And security or effective security is really all about context. You have to define what security is for you. And it's more than self-protection, even though that's where we seem to spend a lot of our time, it's life safety skills as well. So, as an example, on security detail, uh, do we carry weapons? Absolutely. But we'll also have a trauma kit with about $10,000 worth of gear in it. The key is you have to think beyond the first problem, which is violence, to the next problem, which is the physical aftermath of violence.
0: So, I mean, and that, you know, it's, that's so true too, because I mean, a lot of, if you think of like a lot of guys with like concealed carry, you know, handguns, stuff like that, um, you know, the worst can happen. I think we always have in our, in our minds, like the best thing is going to happen, the best case scenario, you know, somebody holds us up, it's a life or death scenario. I pull my gun, I'm well-trained, I shoot him, bad guy dead, but in reality, and, and, you know, I'm sure you've seen in your line of work as well, you know, bad things can happen to good people. So you might have the best gun in the world, like man stopper ammo, you're well trained, but if a round goes off or, you know, a family member gets stabbed and you're there waiting for, hopefully, you know, you can can tell the ambulance where to go and they're going to get there in time. I mean, the last thing you'd want is to watch a family member die because you weren't prepared with that kind of training. So you think like a lot of people really focus mostly on kind of like the warrior stuff and not, like looking at what the total the total threat is
2: yeah i i do i think that uh the, the warrior side seems to be the more compelling side
0: uh i it's think sexier. it's the more interesting
2: side yeah absolutely people enjoy training that first aid feels a little boy scoutish i think to most people it's not glamorous you know it, it, it's it's kind of a mundane topic, but if you can't hold things together on that end, it doesn't really matter how effective you are on the front end, particularly as it relates to protecting family members.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm a little bit of a different case because I've been in combat, and so I've you know I've had to use a firearm in life or death scenarios. But if I if I weren't in that scenario, and I think back on the different. You know things I've had to deal with just in in every ordinary life I've come across you know car accidents where you know I've been able to to stop and help somebody you know things like that so that's a like a tactical skill that a lot of people maybe wouldn't label as a tactical skill. you're right it sounds kind of boy scoutish but You know, it's absolutely a life or death skill and probably one that you would most likely use. I mean, I think most people probably will never fire their gun outside of the range, you know, truly in like a life or death scenario. But how many times can we all think about how many times we might had to have stopped, you know, somebody from choking or, you know, think about the times that we've needed that sort of that sort of skill.
2: Right. And when you need those skills,
0: you need them right now. Do you carry any sort of
2: tools with you?
0: Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. So, like, for the average, I mean, you're obviously, if you're part of a bodyguard team or whatever, um, you know, okay, you've got a $10,000 trauma kit with you. What would the average, the average Joe, the average Jane, like, what should they have to be prepared for that kind of, um, you know, to make sure that they are prepared for that kind of a threat?
2: As far as things that uh, can go into a pocket, pair of rubber gloves. CPR mask and a field dressing. Uh, if you know what you're doing, then I'd add a pocket tourniquet to that. And just with those right there, that takes up almost no space in a jacket pocket. Uh, you've really upped your uh, your own survival probability as well as that uh, anyone uh,
0: who you may come in contact with. Yeah, yeah, totally. You know, as a top level bodyguard. You know, you—you I know you'd often be traveling to and operating in unknown areas, sometimes maybe even on like an hourly basis. Like if you were escorting a principal to a restaurant, a new city or something like that, what has this type of tactical challenge taught you about staying safe no matter where you are? And and give us some tips that about how, you know, you can be ready for anything that you may encounter as a threat, even if you're in an area that you don't really, you know, you're not really familiar with.
2: Okay, I like that. Um and in this case, I think the, using the bodyguard analogy is appropriate because it's actually more similar to what uh, you know, private citizens are faced with than what they might initially think. Bodyguards deal with two types of environments, known and unknown, and so do you. It's either an environment that you're well familiar with or an environment that you're not. Uh, so for you, a known environment would be your home. Okay, for a bodyguard, it could be the client's office, and that's just one example. But none of us have the luxury of knowing in advance where a problem may occur. So what's critical is to understand the commonalities of different environments. So what I mean by that is uh, a retail space, uh, restaurants, uh, convenience stores actually share a number of similarities in terms of how they're laid out. So you need to sort of train yourself to recognize those. You know, what, what's going to be the hard point uh, in, in a restaurant, in a convenience store? You know, if shots start uh, ringing out, where are you going to uh, head to? Where are you going to pull a loved one to? Uh, so as soon as you enter any unknown setting, you need to begin visually gathering as much information as possible. As I like to say, as soon as you are in, you need to determine in advance just how
0: to get back out. Yeah. The other thing I always think about when I like, when I go in a restaurant, kind of along those lines is like, is the, is the table bolted down or is it something that can be tipped over or, you know, um, you know, what? what is everything made out of there? I mean, some stuff is good for concealment, some stuff, but it would not be good for cover. You know, that's sort of a thing.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. The, and the more uh, analytical you can be about your environment, I think back to my uh, police officer days, when a guy in a Denny's, you know, just a, a routine call, passed out in the booth, uh, he came to right before I got there and tried to stab me with a fork force that just happen to be accessible on the table. So understanding the environment is critical.
0: Yeah. Is there any sort of like mental checklist that you go through? Like let's say that somebody goes into, let's just say it's a restaurant, you know, um, and is there any sort of mental checklist that somebody can go through to say, okay, you know, I don't even know if there's like an acronym or something like, you know, exits, Um, you know, layout or, you know, position of table or something like that?
2: Um, I like the idea, and, you know, I like the idea of uh, simplifying the process through the use of an acronym. I'm not familiar with one. Um, Basically, uh, things work uh, one of two ways. Uh, in the EP field. And
0: yeah, see I wanna I wanna get inside of your head. So you're you've got a principal, the principal is in the limo and he says, Hey, that looks like a good place to eat. Let's go. So you're yeah. the head point you're the head guy in. You go in before he goes in. You open the door. What what's going through your head? Like what what do you what what's your analysis process before you say, Okay, this is safe and this is where we're gonna this is where we're gonna sit and this is how we're gonna we're going to be here and be safe.
2: Right. Um, what What you describe is a stressful circumstance,
0: number one.
2: Um, it's not typical for a lot of clients to make spur-of-the-moment decisions with respect to you know, where, where they're going to go for dinner, where they're going to go uh, to socialize. Mm. Uh, a number of our clients, all of that has been mapped out well in advance. And that word advances actually uh, part and parcel of what we do. We advance locations ahead of time so that we've got uh, contacts at a restaurant or a nightclub or a theater or wherever the venue is. And we have picked out the table. We know approximately what time we're going to be there. We know approximately how long we're going to be there. And we do everything possible to basically own that environment uh, while while we're there. Now, that's ideal. And even the most uh, methodical, uh, predictable client can surprise you. And when that happens, then we get into a situation that's much more like what you described. Hey, I'm in the mood for Italian. That looks like a good place. Oh, looks like we're pulling over. So in that type of a situation, Jeff, uh, we just, as soon as we can alert one of the vehicles that this is happening, we try to get somebody in as uh, far in advance of the client as possible just to start looking around. And what they're looking for is exactly what you're describing. You know, where are the exits? Where are the bathrooms? You know, where are the blind spots? How many ways in and out? Uh, how many of those ways uh, look doable, you know, based on uh, crowd flow? Um, and then, you know, kind of w- working backwards from there. We know what types of spots in a, uh, in a restaurant, say that we like, we know what types of spaces the client likes. And the challenge is oftentimes, with clients, they don't make decisions based on security. And typically, you don't make seating decisions for your client uh, solely based on security. Most clients do what they want to do, and then you have to navigate uh, the complexities of their decision-making. So, some clients, uh, not so much for us, because we did more uh, executives rather than celebrities, but celebrities tend to position themselves where they will be seen, which creates every problem that that you're thinking of right now. So, with a a more low-key client, they, they typically want privacy. Well, that's what we want for them as well, and we can seat them accordingly, but you know if they see someone uh or they just decide they want to people watch whatever the circumstances is, we kind of have to roll with that so it's it's endless compromises in the same way that for a private citizenship you know, uh your your safety your security is a compromise of sorts you will never be ideally situated you will never uh have the the type of operational control of of a Uh, nightclub of a restaurant that you would like. It's always going to be
0: compromised to a
2: certain extent. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it does. I I am trying to put this in kind of like the private citizen mode. So, you know, obviously when you go in, you know, most likely you're going to get the table that you're given. Um, Although I'm with my wife and my wife always makes sure that she gets the table that she wants, no matter where she's getting seated. So I let her do all that work. Um, And then positioning where you can see, Maybe the front the front door is is kind of a, a common thing um you, you would probably recommend knowing where the exits are um, what is the visibility that sort of thing
2: yeah it's It's sort of a compromise in terms of it's different for the private citizen uh, than it is for the executive uh, in this respect yeah. um, if things go badly. The private citizen needs to get out, um, no no question. The job of a protection agent is to get the client out, but based on how things are taking place, you may have to be there a little while before the opportunity to get out presents itself. Yeah. So, you know, where, where are the hard points? You know, how, how can we array agents around this client in, in a way that can afford some protection? Well, at the same time, this is where it really keeps coming back to is despite what people see in the movies, clients are not comfortable having security on top of them. It's unnatural. It feels weird and it also looks weird. It draws attention to itself. And most security teams, try to keep a low profile now you know in some parts of the world and with some clients you can't do that because it's just so dangerous but in the united states you know it's a permissive environment Mm -hmm. Uh, you try to give the client space which means you're constantly on that you know push pull uh continuum of you know security versus uh you know normalcy if that makes sense
0: yeah yeah,
2: Which is the same reason, you know, we don't carry everything that we might feel we need in a particular place. Because, again, it gets back to, you know, security versus normalcy. You, know, you can't strap on certain things. You have to wear normal clothes. So it's, yeah. it's uh, similar in that respect.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're talking with Mike Gillette of MikeGillette.com about how to be tactically prepared for any threat that you and your family may have to deal with in a real survival scenario, and we have a lot more to get to, including going beyond weapons training to develop the mental fortitude necessary to use those weapons in a real life or death scenario, how to harden your mind to avoid the common combat freeze that so many who get surprised with an ambush attack go through, and how state-dependent learning could be the key you've been looking for to completely transform and elevate all of your technical training. But first, check out this special message.
1: What if everything you knew about how to stop a violent attacker with your gun was wrong? Discover the advanced tactics you must know now to protect yourself and those you love with a firearm. Check out our free book, Stopping Power Secrets. Inside, you'll find such no-hold-barred shockers as 1. The three most common myths and misinformation shoveled out by movies and gun range know-it-alls that could get you killed in a real-life gunfight. 2. The cold, hard truth about your personal weapon's ability to be a one-shot man-stopper. 3. What coroners know about selecting the right ammo for your firearm that you don't. 4. And the simple training trick used by Abrams Tank Crews and commercial airline pilots that will prepare you for a real attack even better than your best day at the range. Don't place your family's safety in the hands of Hollywood fairy tales and hearsay. Claim your free copy of Stopping Power Secrets now now at www.stoppingpowersecrets.com. And now, back to the show.
0: Okay, we're back with Mike Gillette of MikeGillette.com talking about how to think like a high-level bodyguard and tactically prepare for any life or death threat that you may face. Now, we have a lot more to get to, so let's go ahead and jump right back into our interview now. Now, Mike, I feel more confident with with a firearm on my side, and I have other backup weapons that I carry as well, including my body weapons through my my physical hand-to-hand combat training. Now, of course, tool training is necessary because you have to know how to use those tools effectively, but it's the mind that puts those tools into action. What mental work should be done before an attack in order to be ready to use those weapons?
2: Excellent question, Jeff. Weapons are, of course, a significant variable in the security equation because they represent an escalation of severity. Uh, The most critical issue to consider before carrying a self-defense tool, in my opinion, is if you are sincerely committed to using that tool if circumstances warrant So just one example of that. Think about how many people carry knives uh, for what they say are self-defense purposes. Now, how many of those people really, truly have considered what using a knife means? To be physically close enough to an attacker to look into that person's eyes while plunging a knife into their body. Because if they haven't truly contemplated the ugliness of using a knife under those kinds of circumstances, then I am not too optimistic about their chances. Self-knowledge is what's critical here. You have to know yourself and what you're willing to do when the chips are down. Otherwise, you can fall prey to what I call behavior-induced decisions. That's simply where the overwhelming nature of fear and surprise lead you to react in ways that are out of proportion to the circumstances at hand. And this brings us to the third point, which is the necessity of possessing a working knowledge of what your legal responsibilities are in a given self-defense situation. If you don't know the when of self-defense, then you have no business carrying legal tools
0: yeah those are assumptions that people make i mean we we did a whole d v d on that because and i've and I've taken a you know i i live in Texas now I moved from Illinois where at the time we couldn't have a concealed carry handgun. I moved to Texas of course, and you know I think you're required to have one when you yeah, cross it's the in a
2: border box i believe <laughs> yeah. exactly
0: and uh you know i i I talk about this with our with our readers and our listeners a lot about you know I went to the concealed carry course. And, and it blew me away. I gave free copies of my, of our bulletproof, um, defense, uh, our bulletproof legal defense DVD to everybody that was in my class because, like, they, they just, they did not even, they barely, barely touched on the legal responsibilities of having a gun. And all I could think of was that everybody that was leaving that course could now carry a gun with them and yet, you know, they, it scared the hell out of me that that half of them, if if they were ever in a situation, would probably make the wrong move and go to prison for defending themselves because they didn't understand the legal. Damage. So so when I say that, there's an assumption I think that everybody has that. Well, of course I know when to pull my gun out. You know, not understanding that even just brandishing a weapon could you know have that weapon taken away forever as they're as they're paid you know as they're as they're painted as guilty. So I mean, there's. There is that aspect of it. And I guess the other thing, and this leads us into, you know, my next question, which is that a lot of guys do talk about how they would never hesitate to defend themselves against an attacker. You know, they say, you know, they say things like, I'd kick that guy's ass or I'd blow his damn head off. And I, you know, you hear this a lot. But, you know, yeah. I've been in combat and I know that no matter how confident someone may think that they are, that they would take decisive action if they had to. it it really is a lot harder than they assume it will be to overcome what we really have is this natural social programming that causes people to freeze. I mean, we're really not conditioned to blow somebody's head off. And if you are, then you're in a whole (laughs) other class than what typically our readers are actually in. So, you know, at the very, at the very least, it's going to delay their action and it could delay it long enough so that the attacker has time to be able to make their move because, because people that are on the street, true criminals who, like you say, that have a knife in their hand and have already you know they already know how to use it, they've already been in that position, they've already gone through that that fight flight or freeze, and they know now, okay, I can't freeze, I can't run i i I know I have to use this thing. The bad guys have have typically already gone through that process, so they're already you know head and shoulders above us, and they don't have that that hesitation, so I guess when I ask a question to you is you know, how can someone truly harden their mind to be able to avoid that hesitation, you know, that could turn them into a victim?
2: Oh, you had so many great, uh, great points in, in that uh, setup there uh, that are really good. And I like the fact that uh, I've heard you several times use the word freeze, because I think that uh, many people are not really conversant with that. You know, they're, they're thinking, you know, fight or flight. I'm either, you know, I'm going to get a drill and dump. I'm going to run away or I'm just going to you know, punch the guy out with with all of that adrenaline, not really understanding that one of the prevalent responses is simply to freeze, or, you know, psychologists refer to as hypervigilance, simply because they are unable to process the overwhelming amount of stimulus that is confronting them. And your point about the you know, the bad guy is mentally they're already there. They're they're comfortable with their their life choices and and the things that they have decided to do. So it, it puts the person the good guy, if you will, you know, sort of uh, a couple of milliseconds behind as they have to process this information and they have to make uh, reactive decisions rather than proactive because we're always sort of at the uh, relational uh, mercy, if you will, of the other person. We have to respond in context what's the aggressor does, and we have to wait for them to to do those things. So when you talk about hardening the mind, there are several schools of thought on this. And uh, historically, the Japanese have a term for the ideal state of mind for combat purposes, something they call mushin. Uh, mushin roughly translates in English to no mind or the mind without mind, which of course you know sounds kind of exotic and cool, but it doesn't really take us anywhere. So I relate this to nothing more uh, mysterious than what psychologists refer to as the flow state. The flow state is when the body is functioning exactly how you've trained it to function without conscious effort, meaning that you're not forcing it. But how do we get to that point? How do we get to a flow state? Well, flow state is characterized by three things, uh, focus, a sense of self-mastery, and an expectation of success. Well, self-mastery leads to an expectation of success, and both of those things are really related to your physical training or how you practice, but it's that first thing, concentration, that really relates to uh, your term mental hardening, and the simplest way to develop a harder mind is to do things which are physically uncomfortable, because physical discipline is the manifestation of mental discipline, so if you use the tools of physical training, that's a safe way to develop that particular attribute, which is nothing more than you make yourself do things which are difficult and push your own limits, using your own powers of concentration to keep you focused despite the discomfort and despite the distractions that discomfort creates. Because in an attack, Is there discomfort? Is there distraction? Absolutely. So you can train yourself to deal with those variables simply in how you approach your physical training.
0: Yeah, I mean, so it could be anything even like, um, you know, public speaking, something that raises your adrenaline, something that you can feel actual fear, because I know a lot of people are afraid of, like, you know, public speaking and things like that.
2: Yeah, an unexpected but good
0: example. Or asking a beautiful woman... Out on date. That always scared the shit out of me. So I mean, it's like you know, but just things like that that just put you in a position where you know you're not comfortable. I think can make a big difference.
2: Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, Mike, one of the biggest challenges for people is that their their training isn't always congruent with the threat that they may face in a real attack. And you talk about that in the beginning here, like, you know, what, really analyzing what is the threat that you're most likely to face and things like that. But but the training for that um, is, is, you know, that's a, that's a weak link in a lot of people's chain, I think. You know, you refer to this as state-dependent learning. Can you explain what that is and then maybe offer some ways that someone can better train to deal with the reality of what their threat might be for violence?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, the first thing, state-dependent learning is a, a term from psychology. Uh, also uh, equates to uh, context-dependent learning. Uh, but in either case, it means that if you want to be able to access specific memorized information or skills, and that's what training you know, is ideally doing, it's filing away memorized information or skills, then that is best accomplished if those memories or skills were initially developed under the same type of circumstances in which you intend to use them. So, people should already sort of be connecting those dots. That means you, you fight how you train. Mm-hmm. And this is where problems with training starts. Training is often, as you were alluding to, too controlled or too clinical to be of functional use in the real world. Yeah. So in a word, training simply needs to be realistic or as realistic as we can safely make it. So I've got a couple of ideas that are actually pretty simple uh, that one can incorporate into their training just to get a little closer you know, to the complexities or or the ambiguities of of combat. The first one is uh, relating to what we were talking about a moment ago, which is to make your training, even if it's skill training, more physically demanding. So combine physical tasks with skill training. So, for example, if you were to execute 25 burpees and then see how well you perform on a particular uh, firearms course of fire, I would think that you'd probably see an impact from that. And physical activity can be used as as a variable to you know, create fatigue, to induce the same sort of shakiness, if you will, that you might experience in, in the real world. And another one that uh, I like to use is to adjust the time of day, or at least the appearance of the time of day for your training. So, you know, most people have not trained in limited lighting. Okay, imagine sparring, just doing that without a lot of light. How do you think that would feel? Well, it would certainly look more like how it might play out in the real world, but it would also uh, create a bit of anxiety. Now, think about something with grappling. This is about uh, you can't really spar with zero light, but you can grapple like that. Imagine being in a room with no light whatsoever and rolling with somebody. And you know, th- think about how how that would affect your thought process. But also think about how that might improve your sensitivity, your anticipation of what someone's body movements are. So there's kind of a a, a tactical developmental piece to that, as well as sort of a skill building piece as well. So it's just a question of safely integrating environmental variables into your training to see how it affects your performance. And this last one is one I started doing back in the 90s uh, with my uh, police training, and that's training with some type of simulated physical limitation. Now, one of my favorite ways to do this is to take a weight vest, you know, put a weight vest on the trainee, because a weight vest will push into the chest. It makes it harder to breathe. And you can think of any number of circumstances that might affect the mind under stress that makes it hard to breathe. The only downside to that is weight vests can be expensive. So here is uh, on the other side of the economic spectrum, take a rock and put it in one of your shoes. Trust (laughs) me, you will notice it. Or take an arm out of the equation by wrapping it in a towel and, and cinching that up with duct tape. And the point of any of those ideas, and of course, once you start down that road, you'll come up with other ideas too, is to find ways to work past the immediacy of the limitation while still solving the the tactical problem, solving the bigger issue of protecting yourself. And of course, as you get more proficient navigating those kinds of variables, then you can begin to combine them. And nothing develops your skills for the real world better than training in less than ideal conditions.
0: Yeah. You know, you're, I think you're the first person I've ever heard, you know, because we talk about um, in firearms training, you know, that studies have shown, I'm going to throw out the word 80% because that's what I've seen in the studies, but like 80% of all real gunfights happen in, in low light circumstances. But so, I, you know, I've seen that in firearms training. I've, I've seen that mentioned before, but I've never heard anybody before say, you know, train hand-to-hand combat in, in low light. And I've been through... You know, a number of different martial arts. I, I take Krav Maga. I've, I've, I, you know, I've been with a number of instructors. Nobody's ever turned out the lights. Not one person. It's the first time I've heard it. So, sure. but it makes a lot of sense. I mean, if you're going to be attacked with a gun in low, in, in low light, you know, that we always tell people, you know, you could very easily be in a in a, in a, hand, hand, or a hand-to-weapon combat struggle, you know, at the same, you know, in that same confrontation. So it makes sense to, you know, to train in that type of environment in low light as well.
2: Yeah, something I've been doing. I I think probably going back to the early '90s is the first time I was ever introduced to that, and I thought it was just brilliant. Yeah, and simple and brilliant. As I say, it's it's not just a skill builder. It's it also it creates anxiety. I mean, it just does. You, even if you're you know a steely-eyed tough guy, it just it affects the mind. So it's it's another one of those circumstances where we're we're getting people out of their comfort zones. And and making them solve the problem. Yeah. Because everything in the world is going to feel like it's going wrong when you're dealing with a, a real world attack. Yeah. So your ability to navigate those waters under less than ideal circumstances is essential.
0: Yeah. Good stuff. Well, Mike, I, I really appreciate uh, taking some extra time with us today. Um, I uh, this is um this is stuff that always intrigues me. This is kind of like my local. This is like my most recent little pet topic that kind of sticks in my mind, this whole, like, tactical lifestyle preparedness sort of a thing. And so um, this is really great information. I really appreciate you taking some time with us today. Um, look, everybody, definitely go check out Mike's stuff. He's got a lot of different training out there. I mean, you might have seen some of his his, um, his self-defense videos. You might have seen some of his strongman stuff. He's got a new product coming out called The Psychology of Strength that um, I, I'm i really looking forward to uh to checking out. I just got an advanced copy of it and I'm 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 checking it out now. Uh Mike and I have done some stuff in the past with some of his physical uh fitness training that you know allows you to be fifty three years old and bending iron bars and looking like Mike does, which I think most of us would uh would really like to do. So um anyway, go check it out. His website you can go is uh MikeGillette.com. You can go check that out and get access to uh some of those things. And um anyway Definitely highly recommend it. Highly recommend it. So, Mike, Mike, thanks again. I really appreciate it, man. My pleasure, Jeff. Awesome. Okay. All right, everybody, until our next broadcast for Modern Combat and Survival, this is Jeff Anderson saying train hard, stay safe, prepare now.